up for the session on time. Uh, we'll begin on time. The, this is the session on uh, anniversaries are about today commemorating transformative events. So if any of you are not here to talk about commemorative events, uh, you may want to make your exit now if, you, if you've come into the wrong room. Also, uh, I would like you to please silence any cell phones or other ringing, jangling things you might have. We are recording this session for later podcast on the ASLH website, so out of respect for, is this not on? So we'll, we'll all try to speak loudly So it's because it's just recording. But uh, so this is being recorded, so uh, we would like to avoid as much extraneous sound as possible because it is recorded when we get to the question and discussion session uh, in the latter part of the presentation today. Um, we only have the one microphone recording, so uh, to handle that, I'll try my best to repeat your question, uh, which means it may be slightly edited, especially if you like a lot of dependent clauses in your questions. <laughs> but uh, So just to let you know up front that, that we are recording for broadcast later uh, at ASLH. My name is Ann Toplovich. I'm executive director of the Tennessee Historical Society. I uh, sit on the current Tennessee Civil War Sesquicentennial Commission. I've been in the field long enough that as an undergraduate, I actually worked on a project funded by the U.S. Bicentennial Commission, and I've uh, been involved with some commemorations since then. Before I make my opening remarks, I'm going to go ahead and introduce the uh, presenters today. Uh, to my immediate left is Chris Goodlett. Chris has served for two and a half years as the Community Services Coordinator at the Kentucky Historical Society. He's the Society's primary field service contact, and he provides technical assistance to small museums and historical organizations through phone, email, and on-site consultancies. He also coordinates uh, workshops and seminars throughout the state on pertinent issues for museums and historical organizations. So obviously for commemorative events, Chris is an important person at the KAH in helping local organizations plan their uh, projects. He's a graduate of Murray State University in Murray, Kentucky, where he received both his bachelor's degree in history and his master's in public history. Then moving down the table, Roger Stroop is the head of the Virginia, of Virginia, not Virginia, been hanging around with too many Virginia people. Roger Stroop is at South Carolina Archives in History, and uh, obviously his state's one of the main reasons we're looking at commemorating the Civil War in 2011. Roger received his Ph.D. at the University of South Carolina. He uh, worked for the Historic Columbia Foundation in the 1970s, later at the South Carolina State Museum as Curator of History and Chief Curator, as well as Director of collections and interpretation. And since 1997, he's been at the South Carolina Department of Archives and History as their director and the state historic preservation officer. Bob Blackburn, who is on the your side of the table, is director of the Oklahoma Historical Society. Bob also has a PhD in history. He's been at the OAH for 30 years and is the author of 18 books. And Oklahoma has just concluded a centennial of statehood there. This session on commemorating transformative events 
is looking at the question not only of how the people at the table have handled recent commemorations, but also I hope we'll get at the issue that commemorative events are not especially about the actual event in the past that took place, although that is the um, impetus for the anniversary, whether it's one that's celebrated or one that is simply commemorated because of its tangled issues. But commemorative events in the United States have always tended to be more about the issues in the country at the time of the celebration rather than the event that was celebrated in and of itself. I've been struck by some of the sessions I've seen here uh, and listened to of people talking about putting historical information up so people know what happened in the past. And I think we always need to keep in mind that we can make a valiant effort to shape the public's memory of the past, but we cannot dictate that memory. And when it comes to our commemorative events, we may have messages we want to share, but we shouldn't fault ourselves if we cannot convince every single member of the public to take the bait that we've put out there for them. An another session, uh, there's a term that librarians are using now called radical trust, where you open yourself up through blogs, uh, comment sections, and other things to what the public has to say about your mission and activities. And I think in commemorations, especially with some of those that are upcoming, we may have to adopt a policy of radical trust as well. <laughs> so with those preliminary statements, there are three transformative events, I think, that all of us in the United States share that, that come to my mind. The first and most obvious is Independence Day, uh, the day, 4th of July, that we used to mark the American Revolution, which transformed us into an independent nation. Perhaps this is just my perspective as a Tennessean, but the War of 1812 was a very transformative effect, uh, transformative event in United States history because it was the War of 1812 and especially the victory at the Battle of New Orleans in 1815 that let Americans feel that they had finally separated themselves from the mother Great Britain and were an equal on the stage of world nations. And then of course the third is the Civil War in the 1860s. One might argue that World War II is perhaps the most transformative event of the 20th century, but we've not really gotten quite enough distance to do significant commemorations of that war. Each generation, I think, has marked those events in different ways and for different purposes. The Civil War essentially obliterated from the United States public the need to celebrate the War of 1812. Up until 1860, the Battle of New Orleans anniversary in January was one of the major moments of commemoration in the public year in the United States. We've essentially forgotten that in 2008. But as you look at the commemorations that have taken place, uh, beginning with the U.S. Centennial in 1876, it was about the foundation of our country, but the subtext of that was reconciliation after the Civil War. The Columbian Exposition of 1892, the 400th anniversary of the discovery, and they didn't mind using the word discovery of America, but it was also an excuse for Gilded Age conspicuous consumption 
in the Columbian expositions that were done. America was celebrating how prosperous it had become. Of course, the panic of 1893 happened the next year, which impacted the Tennessee centennial. But uh, nevertheless, in 1892, we were celebrating our prosperity and also our imperialistic ambitions as well. The Civil War centennial in uh, 1961, I don't know if any of you have read the recent book, it came out in 2007 by Robert Cook, Troubled Commemoration, the American Civil War Centennial, 1961 to 65, it's from LSU Press. The whole mission of the U.S. Centennial, Civil War Centennial Commission was to hold up America as a paragon of democratic virtues as compared to the communist in the Soviet Union. It had a, started out with a total Cold War mission and rammed directly into the civil rights movement, which led to a really disastrous uh, Civil War commemoration. And then, of course, the U.S. Bicentennial in 1976 uh, was about reconciliation yet again because we were coming out of the end of the Vietnam War and there was an effort to unite the public and also some elements of the 60s in musicals like 1776 that appeared on Broadway at the time. And then I'm just going to wrap up with the Columbus Quincentennial of 1992. And I don't know how many of you paid attention to this 500th anniversary of the Columbus voyage, but unlike 1892, the Quincentennial ended up being a cause for conversations about diversity, about cultural exchange, and also uh, castigation of Europeans for what they did to native populations that they discovered not only here but around the globe. So that's some background for uh, thinking about commemorations and how they address the needs of the public of the day. And Chris Goodlett is going to lead off with his uh, discussion of Kentucky's experience. Thank you very much, Ann. I'll prepare our contact way. I'm in signal here. Kentucky has been very fortunate uh, to participate in a few commemorations uh, very recently. Uh, two I'm going to talk about today. We just came out of the Kentucky Lewis and Clark Bicentennial Commemoration, and we are flat smack dab in the middle of the Kentucky Abraham Lincoln bicentennial commemoration. So we've been very busy with commemorations at the Historical Society. And basically what I wanted to do was kind of just tell you a little bit about what we put in place for Lewis and Clark and just kind of give you an idea of what we learned from Lewis and Clark that we are currently applying uh, to Abraham, the Abraham Lincoln bicentennial, just to give a picture of how we change from one to the other. Lewis and Clark Bicentennial Commission, uh, it was established by legislative act and signed into law by then-Governor Paul Patton in May of 2002. Yeah, this information is pretty prominent on our website. There still is an existing website, lewisandclarkinkentucky.org, which I'll show you a little bit more later as well. But it has a lot of information about how Kentucky was important to the Lewis and Clark expedition. Uh, you'll see a lot of outdated information about past events on there, but the historical information on there is very good. We did have a mission for the commission, as you see there, which a lot of it has to deal with kind of uh, 
making sure people understand the prominence of the Eastern legacy in the states east of the Mississippi in the Lewis and Clark expedition. And that was a big part of what the Lewis and Clark Kentucky Bicentennial was about. We did have some funding by state appropriation and the commission was administered by the Kentucky Historical Society. I think for the 2004 to 2006 biennium, I think we had approximately $50,000 for each year to spend on the Lewis and Clark Bicentennial. Again, what was the narrative we were trying to get across with the Lewis and Clark Bicentennial in Kentucky? Well, as I said, we did want to emphasize that eastern legacy of the expedition and make sure people understood the importance of that. And one of the statements we had is that it was east of the Mississippi where the expedition's very important planning, recruitment, and supply occurred. And in this, Kentucky played a major role. We also addressed how many of the members of the Corps of Discovery were from Kentucky. And to draw the ire of our friends from Missouri, we have that last statement there for you. Kentucky can rightfully be called the cradle of the Corps of Discovery. A little bit about what we learned about Lewis and Clark and kind of incorporating that into some of the programming that we did. One of the most positive things for us, I think, with the Lewis and Clark Bicentennial was we were able, as a state agency, the Kentucky Historical Society, to really enhance our relationship with the Filson Historical Society. That's a private historical society located in Louisville, Kentucky. The picture you see there to the right is of the Ferguson Mansion. That's the headquarters of the Filson Historical Society in the neighborhood known as Old Louisville. And not only did we have Mr. Jim Holmesburg, who's the curator of special collections at the Filson, a Lewis and Clark expert who was the co-chair of our commission, uh, was very helpful in getting some of our research done, but also we were able to host an exhibit produced by the Filson at the Kentucky Historical Society. That was kind of one of the last pieces we had to the Lewis and Clark Bicentennial commemoration that we actually housed at the Kentucky Historical Society and we're able to feature that exhibit, move it from Louisville for a short period, move it to the state capitol in Frankfurt. So we were very fortunate to be able to do that. As I mentioned a little bit before, we do have a good informational website, www.lewisandclarkincentucky.org, where if you're curious about some of the Kentucky places, some of the Kentucky people, some of the other things related to Lewis and Clark in Kentucky, that's a good way to find out some initial information and kind of learn what that's all about. We did have a community grant program, which was small, but was pretty effective. Just to give you one example of the type of projects that we funded, in addition to speaker series and things of that nature. We had some folks that uh, applied for grants to tie in canoeing programs, teaching kids how to canoe, with also some of the history of Lewis and Clark. So it was kind of a way to really get kids involved, not only with the activity, but also with telling them some of the history as well. So we didn't have just straight history programs of speaker series and exhibits and some things of that nature. We also had programs like that that were very effective and, and brought some kids out and taught them about the Lewis and Clark legacy. Some other things that we kind of learned that are not necessarily negative, but things that we wanted to improve upon for the Lincoln Bicentennial. Claiming the story, but don't stretch. I think when you do a commemoration, that's always one of the things you want to watch out for. You want to talk about your place in that commemoration, but you don't want to make it bigger than it is. I always give an example, and some of my staff, uh, some of the staff at the historical site have heard this before, so I apologize for boiling them with it again because a few of them are in here. But it's a personal story for me that kind of illustrates that. Uh, I was at the Kentucky Derby Museum for most of the bicentennial of Lewis and Clark. Uh, this is before I came to the Historical Society. And does anyone know, or does anyone have a guess? And shake your head yes or no, what the connection of the Kentucky Derby Museum would be to Lewis and Clark. People from Kentucky don't count. Well, the significance, as it was put forward, was that 
Remember the Lewis Clark Jr. is the grandson of William Clark. He was the founder of the Louisville Jockey Club in 1875, which later became Churchill Downs, and he was the founder of the Kentucky Derby. So that was our connection to the Lewis and Clark expedition. We uh, did a panel exhibition, just kind of illustrating some of the family tree, and we talked about what racing was like during the time of Lewis and Clark. And I'll never forget that we had a gentleman who was a writer for the Louisville Eccentric Observer, which is an alternative weekly newspaper in Louisville. He was basically doing a story about what's all this Lewis and Clark stuff about in Kentucky and how are we tied to it. Well, one of the examples he pointed out is he came to the Kentucky Derby Museum, he heard about this panel exhibit, he walked up and he looked at it, and he, I didn't get it. He just didn't get it. Didn't understand the importance of it, didn't understand why it was there. Now, initially, you know, I was really upset, pounding the table, as my in-laws would say, and was ready to write a letter to Leo, talking to the staff. He said, well, you know, he didn't really get this, he didn't understand the significance, we really need to make sure he understands that. Of course, if 24 hours pass, it's like, probably shouldn't worry about it. It's out of the news cycle. Don't worry about it. You know, no one will remember it next week, so it's not a concern anyway. But now that I'm further removed, the gentleman had a perfect point, I think, about that significance. You know, the Kentucky Derby Museum is on the website. It's listed kind of as a tertiary site. There's a connection for us historically, for historians it might be kind of interesting. At least I hope people would be a little bit interested to say, oh, that's an interesting connection that Churchill Downs is connected to the Clark family in this way. But are people going to come to the Kentucky Derby Museum and get a Lewis and Clark experience? No, not at all. So that's my example, my personal example of, you know, claiming the story but don't stretch. It's probably a little bit of a stretch for us to list the Kentucky Derby Museum as a Lewis and Clark site, even though there is kind of an interesting connection. Make sure you follow through on big initiatives. We had some successful initiatives with Lewis and Clark Bicentennial, but one that I think we feel we might have improved upon was an effort to get the Lewis and Clark Trail really extended officially into some of these eastern legacy states. Now, from what I understand, from what I've heard recently, this is not a dead issue. It apparently may go before Congress, and there may be a determination to extend that trail. But that really could have been a focal point for us for the bicentennial from 2003 to 2006. And had we clung upon that initiative and taken hold of it earlier, that might have been something we could have really promoted as a big legacy piece for the Lewis and Clark bicentennial. And make sure there are measurable outcomes. We had a narrative, as I showed you a minute ago, but we really didn't have any outcomes that indicate success for the Lewis and Clark Bicentennial, which I think we improved upon with uh, the Lincoln Bicentennial that I'll show to you here in just a moment. So we go into the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Commission. Uh, it was established by executive order of our then-Governor Ernie Fletcher in 2004. The second point there, I don't think it's, we can really overstate the importance of a gentleman like Senator Dan Kelly, our state senator from Springfield, Kentucky, and helping us get some appropriations. As you see there, for the first biennium, 2006 to uh, 2008, which just wrapped up, we had $4 million for that two years to celebrate the Lincoln Bicentennial. We have a little less, uh, as you see, for the next biennium. It's going to be, when it shakes out, probably between $1.5 and $1.7 million. A lot less than the $4 million, but enough to where I think we can really do some successful things and complete some successful projects for the Lincoln Bicentennial when it wraps up in 2010. As you see, the commission, which is administered by the Historical Society, is responsible for coordinating the state's Lincoln activities. And also, you see, we also have a mission for this commission as well, and that's prominently placed on our website. And especially is dealing with Lincoln's Kentucky story and his legacy of freedom, democracy, and equal opportunity for all, as stated in the mission. Do the research up front, Lincoln Bicentennial themes, something we felt was very important and something I think up to this point we've been very successful at. 
when I arrived at the historical society in 2006, this was already in place. We had tasked our research and interpretation department at the historical society to look at what are those themes that connect Kentucky to Lincoln. And this is what they came up with. They did an actual position paper, uh, which I don't have copies of, but I'd be more than happy to share with you if you're curious as we did that. Just give me a card or something and I'll get that to you. But these are the themes that they came up with that, were really, that would really stick and resonate with Kentucky. Uh, Lincoln's family, friends, and associates, his role in developing uh, Lincoln's character, politics, and ideals, Kentucky's role, excuse me, the effect of Lincoln's policies on Kentucky before, during, and after the Civil War, and highlighting the message of Lincoln for the 21st century. Those are the four themes that we came up with that would really resonate with Kentucky and tell Lincoln's story in Kentucky. It is, yes. These are on the website. Um, and most everything with the bicentennial, the Lincoln bicentennial, you'll see these themes very prominently, and you'll also see the next things very prominently. Because, as I mentioned, with Lewis and Clark, we had a narrative, but we really did not have outcomes that would tell us what does success mean for the Lincoln bicentennial. That is something we did very early on in the process for the Lincoln bicentennial. And we came up with four outcomes. The first is positioning. Establishing Lincoln as a Kentuckian by the state and national level. We also have education, incorporating the relevance of the Lincoln story into educational programming across Kentucky. We have the cultural infrastructure, what has to do with strengthening the long-term legacy of Kentucky's Lincoln sites and museums. And lastly, we have the tourism outcome, which is enhancing Kentucky's heritage tourism industry. So those are the four things that we felt would signify success for the Lincoln Bicentennial. That last statement there where I say that really is kind of the benchmark as how we measure, measure what still needs to be done, that's very true. At our commission meetings on at least one occasion, if not two, we've gone over with the commission what our outcomes are, how the money's been apportioned in relevance to each outcome, and seeing what needs to have a little bit more investment for the bicentennial. So we have held very, very fastly to that. Lincoln Bicentennial Partnerships. Uh, again, can't be overstated. I mentioned there are state agencies and communities. Just briefly, I'll mention some of the partnerships we've had with some of our sister state agencies in Kentucky. I would venture to say that we've probably got at least eight or nine different state agencies that have had really some critical role in the Lincoln Bicentennial. Briefly, I'll just tell you about three that have been very important. The Kentucky Arts Council, which has not only been a granting agency, but they've been very instrumental in some successful sculpture projects in Hodgenville. Uh, Lincoln's birthplace. That statue was just unveiled this past May. And in February 12, 2009, they'll actually be unveiling a new sculpture in Springfield. Springfield, Kentucky is a site where Lincoln's parents were married. And there's going to be a new sculpture unveiled there. And the Arts Council was very instrumental working with those communities to make sure that those projects were successful. Looking at their grants, uh, I had the privilege of serving on a couple of their review committees. And the interest of the arts community in this bicentennial in Kentucky has been pretty phenomenal. Just to give you an example of one project uh, in Louisville, we have a, a body known as the Squalus Puppeteers, which, uh, not puppets in the way you think, their puppets are extremely, extremely large. We're talking about seven, eight foot tall puppets. And they've actually made an actual Lincoln puppet and they've absorbed part of that Lincoln story, <laughs> talking about the ideals that were important to Lincoln and including this in an arts program in Louisville for students. A very interesting way to approach some of these issues. A couple of other state agencies that have been very important. The Kentucky Humanities Council has also been a granting agency for the Lincoln Bicentennial. And uh, one of the projects they've really worked on 
they worked with the Kentucky Repertory Theater in Horsecave, Kentucky, to produce some original theater works related to Abraham Lincoln and his life. And uh, last but not least, the Kentucky Heritage Council, our state historic preservation agency, has also been a granting agency. And one of their major projects, which we think will be a great legacy project for Kentucky, they've been working with the community of Breckenridge County to purchase and work on some interpretive plans for the General Joseph Holt House, who was a Union general during the Civil War and is in a very important site, not only for Lincoln, but also for the upcoming sesquicentennial that we think will be a great legacy project for Kentucky. One other thing I'll tell you, that photo there in the bottom, kind of in the center, that was a program that was done by the Kentucky Department of Parks and the Historical Society. That took place at Lincoln Homestead State Park. Uh, that was actually the Lincoln Hanks wedding. That was kind of the reenactment. We actually wrote an original drama. Greg Hardison, who many of you may have met, who is our museum theater coordinator at the Historical Society, wrote a play called Dearly Beloved that kind of was a reenactment of the Lincoln Hanks wedding, and we had it at the site there in Springfield, Lincoln Hanks. There, it's what you see in the center there, there in front of the cabin. And also, there on the other side, that is uh, just a kind of example of the second one. The Historical Society sought private funds to complement public monies. Uh, our exhibit that we have, Beyond the Log Cabin, which is the official state exhibit for the Lincoln Bicentennial, that's a watch that belonged to Abraham Lincoln, and that will be one of the prominent pieces of that exhibition. A little bit about the outcomes and really how the outcomes were important to everything we did. The positioning outcome, and I think you'll see that some of these really cross over into other outcomes, which is ideal, which is really what we want. Some of the prominent programs there, the kickoff events, you may have heard that the kickoff events for February 12, 2008 were actually canceled due to weather after all the planning that went in. When we go out into communities, a lot of people will often express a lot of sympathy that the events were canceled. But that really hasn't slowed our momentum. Even it, during that day, we actually had some other events that afternoon that weren't canceled. We had some unveiling of some interpretive markers. We had some other events related to the bicentennial. And we're still moving forward. Some of the other projects there that you'll see that have been very important KET's I2M of Kentucky in a two-hour documentary. It's been very, very good for us. We've really appreciated the response to that. And several other that you see. The Humanities Council, our Lincoln Gala, that's something they did. Oh, back in February of this past year before the kickoff, that's actually going to be going to Washington, D.C. next year. There's so a few other things, as I know I'm running low on time. Lincoln Outcomes Education, a few of the things we've done for our education outcome. Uh, the bottom left photo, Jefferson Davis. We did have a Jefferson Davis symposium. Uh, that was very well received. Uh, we do joke at KHS that, you know, we have Lincoln money paying for something on Jefferson Davis. But it's an it's important part of the story. Uh, we're in a unique position that not only was Lincoln born in Kentucky, but Davis was as well. So that's something we get to talk about. The middle photo there, uh, State Fair. We had a State Fair exhibition. We had a lot of educational programs, probably met about 20,000 people. The State Fair is held in Louisville, Kentucky each year and that's one of the projects the students worked on. Cultural infrastructure, we've done a lot of work with our sites. Uh, just tell you a little about the one there in the center. Lincoln Boyhood Home at Knob Creek is going to go in some major renovations during the bicentennial, and that's a project that should be a great legacy project for us. That's the cabin of Austin Gollier, Lincoln's boyhood, Lincoln's boyhood friend. A big piece is, of course, heritage tourism, which you can find a little bit more about in here. If you look inside there on uh, the third page, the Kentucky Heritage Trail, that's the early version of the Heritage Trail that we had. We've promoted it several ways. We've promoted it through our state visitor's guide. We've promoted it through our state uh, map. And we also have this that we've given out. This is a Z-card map that we've given out to a lot of people. 
that has the Lincoln Heritage Trail on it. And as you'll see here, there's a passport system. If you go to one of the 10 of these sites, there's about 15 on the trail. Basically, the trail is about 27 signs spread over about 14, 15 sites. You get 10 stamps, you can turn it in, and you'll be entered in a drawing. And each month, we have a drawing for a prize. And that's a way for people to go to some of our sites. Wrapping up here for our lessons so far, uh, do the research on the front as we discussed, uh, especially relating to some of those themes and outcomes that we did set up early on. Commemoration versus legacy, very important for us. You know, it is a commemoration, but you also want to consider what the legacy piece is. And really, this is so vast because all our sites are doing something different. These things I've outlined for you here are just what the commission and KHS is doing as the administrative agent of the commission. We really feel this is kind of the crescendo for us. We had our kickoff events, which I said were canceled, but we're still going strong. We had our state fair, which was very successful this summer. The Beyond the Log Cabin exhibit, which I told you about, is just getting ready to open up in October, and that will travel to a couple of other sites after it's been at KHS. We're playing some great events for February 12, 2009, <coughs> which we think will be very successful. And next summer, we're going to unveil the Louisville Waterfront statue you see down there at the bottom, that's Ed Hamilton, our sculptor. He's got a sculpture on the Washington Mall, I think called the Spirit of Freedom, commemorating African-American soldiers in the Civil War. And he also has done a sold, uh, statue of York, who was part of the Lewis and Clark expedition. And always, the last two, be democratic with funding. Our grant program has been very successful. That's been a way to get people involved who aren't part or one of the actual sites, but it's a way to get people involved across the state. We've been successful with that. And keep your focus, institutional discipline. Just the last slide I have for you here, some of the challenges that we still face. We feel we've been pretty successful so far, but there's some other things that we really want to work on. We did have the cancellation of the February 2008 events. Of course, keeping momentum, that is a big challenge for us. It's a two-year celebration, and a lot of people sometimes think that it's already over because we had the kickoff, so isn't the Lincoln Bicentennial over? No, it's not. It's really just kind of really kicking into gear. There are several others there, a couple I'll mention. Really keeping some of our projects uh, going. We got a Hishmobile. It's our tractor trailer exhibit that goes around across the state. We want to keep that on the road. It's just been outfitted with a Lincoln exhibit that just opened in February. We also have as a companion piece to that a Museums to Go traveling exhibit program that we really want to get distributed and get across the state and have people really enjoying. One other thing, the last thing I'll talk about, the license plate you see there in the top right-hand corner. We've unveiled that. I think some people think sales have been a little slow so far, so we're trying to get the word out about that. You sometimes walk into the county clerk's office and you have about 40 different plates you can choose from. So it's a challenge for us to get the word out about that and make sure people are investing in that. And the last thing, as I am the walking advertisement, is our merchandising program. Uh, that's something we worked with our sites to get really moving forward. You can go to the website and it is available. There's actually some examples of the merchandise in the insert that I gave to you as well. But uh, we're trying to get that ramped up and get our sites really maybe to invest in some of that merchandise and get the word out about the Lincoln Bicentennial. So I think I've already gone a little bit over. I apologize, but I'd be happy to take questions when we're done. And we are trying to allow ample room for discussion at the end of this session. So, I, you know, if you all will just jot down your questions and we'll probably get to them, we'll get to them at the end of the formal presentations. And the weather Chris was alluding to, we had a, a pretty big system of tornadoes come through Tennessee and Kentucky in February. So it wasn't like it was just raining. <laughs> that, 
to uh, that. We're going to go next to Bob Blackburn uh, because the Oklahoma a celebration of statehood has just recently come to an end, and then Roger will, I think, segue us into the upcoming Civil War commemoration. So, Bob? Thank you, Ann. I've been around history now for more than 30 years. And one thing I've learned is that when you're approaching commemorative events is that you have to pay attention to that old trite saying, be careful what you ask for because you might get it. And that reminds me, just a quick joke, I always have to start with a joke. The old joke about the, the elderly family that wanted more money to do something in retirement to help the grandkids out, travel a little bit, buy a new trailer or whatever. So their idea of, of asking the question for more money was to buy a lottery ticket. Their strategy was to buy one every day. And for years, mom would go to town, buy the ticket, wait for the results, go home, say, Dad, not today. Kept doing this for a couple of years. Finally, one day, mom comes home doing a little jig and saying, Daddy, Daddy, pack your bags, pack your bags. I've won the lottery. I've won the lottery. Well, Dad gets up and celebrates a minute, wears out real quick, sits down. He said, well, Mom, should I pack for the beach or should I pack for the mountains? She said, neither one. Just pack your bags and get the hell out. <laughs> so Dad got what he was asking for, but it wasn't quite what he was expecting. And that's the way commemorative events are sometimes. Uh, you might make it, but uh, you never know what direction it's going to take you. Well, we've gone through that at, in Oklahoma. Uh, we are a young state. Became a state in 1907, November 16th. So we had a chance to celebrate our centennial. Well, whenever we start with a project, I always like to look at challenges, look at assets, then put together a strategy. And to simplify here, the challenges we faced going into our centennial is one, the culture of Oklahoma. Oklahoma's history has created a culture that is largely regional, divisive, and has discouraged attempts at working together over the years. We were the Indian Territory. One reason we became a state so much later than surrounding states like Kansas and Arkansas and Texas is that we were the place to dump all the Indian tribes around the country, literally the Indian tribes came from everywhere. 37 different tribes were sent to Oklahoma on the frontier. Well, that delayed the process. We did not get our first railroads until 1871. And not until 1898 did the federal government say, enough is enough, you're going to lot the land, you're going to create a state, and it started then. Well, not only was Indian territory withheld from Western settlement, but each individual tribal enclave had its own culture. There is as much difference in the Cherokee and the Cheyenne, still today, as there was in 1898, as there is between the French and the Russians. So this cultural diversity is there with our Indian population today. We have more Indians in Oklahoma than any state in the Union, not per capita, but in absolute numbers. Then you throw in the settlement patterns of making that transition into individually owned land. We started with the the first land run in American history, April 22, 1889, that opened the central six counties of the state by land run overnight. And then a, a series of land runs and lotteries that opened the rest of it. So here you have these little mini states within a larger state. And by 1907, Congress, which is Republican, does not want two Democratic states with two sets of senators, says, no, you will become one state. Pushes it all together and say, let's move into the 20th century. 
Well, that is a legacy we still deal with. The old Indian Territory still has its identity versus the old Oklahoma Territory. The Indian tribes are very good at working now, especially with gaming revenue, but not working to, together very effectively. And then even in the western part of the state, largely the northern part of the state is Republican, Midwestern, southern part of the state is Democratic, and very southern. So we have that to deal with. People have enjoyed celebrating commemorative events on the land run of 1893 or commemorative events of founding of Tulsa in 1898 when the Creek Nation began this process of allotments, but not celebrating together. So that was a challenge. Second was a fiscal challenge. How are we going to put together the money for this? We have been a populist state for 100 years where the mantra has been, Let's do it, but let's do it in a mediocre way. <laughs> and so, you know, we don't, you don't have many resources, and we're a populist, low-tax state. Let's make sure everyone gets a little bit. No one does a lot. Largely rural, dominated against the cities. So let's, let's just trickle a little bit of money everywhere. For that reason, we have 35 historic sites. We operate at the Historical Society, and that almost guarantees mediocrity in some ways. And then we get into the fact that when we started our planning processes in 97 and 98, we were going through a shift. Democrats have controlled our legislature since 1907. Republicans had never had a majority. That was changing at this time. We were going from a populist state to a suburban state with all of the changes many of you know in your own states. Coming in with the, the rhetoric of small government, cut taxes, give tax breaks to corporations. Well, it was not the best time to be saying we need money to go out and celebrate our heritage. So with those challenges, the assets on hand were that we had two governors throughout this process who were very supportive of the centennial. And as I know at the Oklahoma Historical Society, over 30 years, governors can make or break us. They have to have the bully pulpit. Even in a weak governor state like Oklahoma, if they've got the bully pulpit, they can help chart the way. And we've had two governors, Governor Frank Keating and Governor Brad Henry, who believed in the centennial. Then we had a booming economy. Farm and ranch was booming in the late 90s with the price of beef up, the price of wheat up. And then oil and gas starts improving after 2001 and 2002. Although I hate it when I go to the gas pump of paying three bucks or more for gasoline, that's good for state revenues. It's good for our bill. We have three of the largest independent oil and gas companies in the country in Oklahoma right now, Chesapeake, Devon, and Mid-Continent. They're in Dakotas. They're in, the, they're in the North Sea. They're in the Gulf states. They're everywhere right now. All the headquarters are right there in central Oklahoma. So this was beginning to percolate just as we were starting. So what's the strategy? Balancing acts. We have to balance not doing everything in Oklahoma City. When we were doing our planning, I was writing the legislation in 97, I went to Tennessee where they had recently completed their centennial. And one of the big challenges there was to make sure that it was not all in the capital city, that it was everywhere, so we knew that. We also knew that we had to have enough substance where it would pull in the historical community and the education community and the cultural community, but at the same time have enough flash to pull in the donors, the politicians, the general public 
who may not necessarily care that much about history. We had to have a balance of public and private funding. And we had to balance a lack of a sense of urgency. Oh, wait a minute, Centennial's 10 years away. That's the mindset of most people with time to plan. And in Tennessee, they told us, start as early as you can, make sure that you deal with that complacency with a lack of sense of urgency. Well, fortunately, we, did, we tried to start early. In 97, we were doing the research, traveling around the country. I worked with a legislative uh, director, and we drafted a bill in 97. And so we get it established. Not asking for any money. This is authorizing legislation. And, of course, we start asking for money. With the legislation, then we start trying to draw support. We were lucky in two ways. We had two big substantive projects to serve as the snowplow that would try to break through all of these challenges. One, and surprisingly, it was called the Dome Project. Oklahoma became a state in 1907, moved the capital to Oklahoma City in 1910 from the little town of Guthrie, uh, raised the money locally, build a new state capital. Well, it's under construction when World War I hits. Not only is it out of budget, the price of steel is going up, it had been the typical neoclassical with the dome. Well, we had an old bachelor governor at the time who was a penny pincher. Remember the mediocrity? He says, we don't need a dome. He just caps off the Capitol without a dome. And so until 1998, our Capitol was partially completed, almost like it site under construction. It could have said state under construction. Well, those people in Enid and McAllister and Lawton Wagner, they don't care about Oklahoma City. That's the state capital. That's the city. And so in this populous state, let's not build this dome. Frank Keating says, we are going to build a dome. And he leads the effort. A little bit of state funding. I think it was $5 million, but he raises $20 million. The times are good again, so he can do that. The dome project, very visible. Local public television network jumps on board, does a special. We have the big celebration to break the ground, have a big, nice 17-foot statue on top called the Guardian of an Indian figure looking towards the east. Then, fortunately enough, and to our benefit, we started the Oklahoma History Center project in uh, 1998. Did the funding, the project briefs in 98, got our first funding in 99 to get started. It was only about half of what we needed. We eventually have spent $62 million on the Oklahoma History Center. We started with, with $32 million from the legislature, but it was starting earlier. The Dome History Center helped draw enough resources. We were able to get a little bit of planning money in 99 and 2000 to create a staff. Not a big staff, but a small staff, but we have our foot in the door early. Again, remember, November 16, 2007 would be it. And the History Center carries the momentum for a couple of years. From 99 to 2005, the centennial is just barely surviving. But in this interim, the History Center is getting attention. I would later do a, a, a book about the press coverage that we got. And it's literally hundreds of front cover stories about the History Center. Uh, 215,000 square feet as a research component, a museum component, public uh, events component on 18 acres of land with an outdoor oil park with five derricks and on four acres. We have an outdoor scaled landscape that was based on my love of Mud Island uh, on the Mississippi. 
Uh, we have statuary and Alan Hauser piece, the last piece he did in 1994, 20 feet tall, beautiful, called the Unconquered. Well, that was getting attention, and we raised about $12 million in the private sector to go along with the second bond issue, and that helped draw attention to history while all this was incubating. And then in 2005, the Centennial Commission got a partner involved in the planning, a man who was Mr. Events. He, his own company was called Oklahoma Events, a man named Lee Allen Smith. Lee Allen comes in as the representative of the country club set, of the man who had been a television station manager and the right-hand man for the largest publisher in the state. He was the man who had the Rolodex. He could get on the phone and call he would know who would put up $5,000 for an event, who would put up 100000 for an event, who would put up a million. And with that person inside the tent, with the substance of the history center, the flash of the dome, the funds start rolling in. The flash is there with, oh, what, about five minutes? Uh, the flash is there to complement the substance of here we're, we have the new temple of history, and we opened that on November 16, 2005, to begin the two-year countdown. The centennial steps in and runs and funds that celebration. Where there are fire, we have a, our history centers next to the state capitol, and a 75-foot-tall dome that's a glass wall looks like you're right next to the state capitol. And Lee Allen did it right. We had the ice sculptures and the champagne. In fact, we had to do it over two nights. But it was a grand affair, and at the end of the night, fireworks on the other side of the state capitol illuminating the dome as we're all sitting here celebrating history in this new day. Well, that was the brilliance of a Lee Allen. I didn't see the benefit of the flash. Of course, I wanted more programs. I wanted collections. I wanted museums. I wanted the things that all of us want. I became a believer in flash. Lee Allen and Blake Wade, his partner, started working on creating more flash. They were accepted by the Rose Bowl Parade. If you saw the Rose Bowl Parade last year, I don't know if you remember Rocket Man. Well, that was paid for by the Oklahoma Centennial Commission. We had not one float, which might have been, well, that's above mediocrity, but Lee Allen got two floats in the parade, as well as Rocket Man. That was kind of the, the climax of the entire parade seen by half of the world. Well, that's Oklahoma at the Rose Bowl Parade. We had Oklahoma at the Macy's Day Parade. We have a state song written by Jimmy Webb, and if you're a music fan, you may know who that is, but from Western Oklahoma, High Plains Boy, performed by Vince Gill. If you're a country and Western fan, you might know who he is. It's called Oklahoma Rising. I brought a, a video to show you, so I can't play it for you today, but it's a catchy little song, very simple. <laughs> but everyone can sing it, Oklahoma Rising. And it's just kind of the same chord, you know, used 80 times. But when you're going for a musical, right now we're in a process of, of choosing a rock song to celebrate the state. And part of the criteria is it a rock song you can easily sing and that any garage band can play. Well, that's the way that our centennial song was, but we did it. Planned a big celebratory gala in the biggest venue in the state. Of course, sold out bringing in acts, the Garth Brooks and the Reba McIntyres, as well as uh, the Ken uh, Opie. What's it, Ken Howard, is that it? But uh, now a director more so. But bringing in all these famous Oklahomans and all of our athletes, the Barry Sanders of the world, and 
celebrating Jim Thorpe's and the Will Rogers and everything that makes Oklahomans proud, whether you're from Enid or McAllister, Oklahoma City or Tulsa, and it worked. The results, let me wrap up with this. I think it's impressive for a state the size of Oklahoma. We have about 3.5 million people. Two large cities, Oklahoma City and Tulsa, have about two-thirds of the population. About a million in Oklahoma City, about 800,000 in the metropolitan area of Tulsa, and everything else scattered around the state. We were able to recognize more than 1,000 local events. And so we heard the really the importance of sharing. Well, we had more than 1,000 communities and organizations step up and say, here's our project. I was on the Centennial Commission. For the longest time, it just seemed like we were just approving projects, but no funding. But people kept coming in and saying, we want our <coughs> event recognized with the hope that there might be funding at some point. By the time we finished, with all the momentum, with the PBS and the local newspapers jumping on board, with the flash and the substance, with kind of a unified approach, our state legislature in a time of moving to a very conservative, let's cut government, let's give tax breaks, let's quit spending all this money, provided $38 million in project money. That's $38 million that came in and then went out to some other entity. On top of that, cumulative was about $4 million for staffing and overhead expenses. And with that in place, we were able to get $5 million in federal, some of it enhancement funds. Many of you have used that and some earmarks. But because of that, we could go out to the business community and individuals who cared about this, and we raised $40 million in the private sector. So almost more than $90 million was accumulated and spent on this. Well, the transformative impact was that no longer is mediocrity okay. The History Center was proof that we can aim high. Today, my Republicans are just as proud of that as my Democrats. Governors love it. We are now the place for receptions for the legislature. I feel like a grizzly bear in a stream because on Monday nights, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays during session with all the receptions, I just stand in the entryway and I welcome my senators and representatives. Welcome to your museum, Senator. I don't have to roam the halls anymore. It's working. Business community, this last year, because of that rising out of mediocrity, we raised $1.3 million for our annual campaign with two big exhibits opening in the next two months. We took on a project in Enid, a little town of about 90,000 people on the Great Plains. It's the biggest city in the western part of the state, where we had a mediocre museum dating from the 60s. That probably sounds, you probably resemble that remark. But we needed to do something more. We proposed a mini history center. We had support for 500,000 from the state. A local family took that project on to reinvent that, that place. We had a $3 million budget when I gave my speech there two and a half years ago. The family bought into it. As of last week, the little town of Enid has raised $8.3 million to go towards this transformation. We will open the building this next April. We'll open the exhibits being designed by Quatrefoil. I know they had an exhibit space here. And that will open in April of 2010. Well, we're looking at this kind of support now, but I think more than support, we're looking at a new standard that Oklahoma needed. It is to admit that mediocrity is not good enough, that we need 
to work on our culture as a state, not just as local individual communities and regions and tribes, and we're in this together. In that free flow of support is moving. The History Center is the substance that stirs the pot. And this commemorative event has changed us right now. We're working on the Lincoln Bicentennial. On February 12th, we will have the Oklahoma Philharmonic, all 44 pieces playing in our History Center with 250 people who will pay $1,000 a seat. It'll be recorded on our PBS station. Scott Momaday, Pulitzer Prize winning American Indian, and I will do a presentation. I'm ripping you off and from Kentucky when you did the slideshow and the commentary reading Lincoln's words. Scott Momaday is going to read the words. I'll do the slides. That's the sort of stuff we're doing now. And one man stepped up and says, I will fund this with $30,000. And we're doing it. That will be the flash to do everything else we need to do in the field. So uh, this can work. Uh, hopefully you'll have $100 oil in your state if you have oil, and things will come together. Thank you very much. And uh, Bob, talking about Oklahoma City, this is just a reminder that in 2010 the ACLH meeting will be in Oklahoma City, so you'll have an opportunity to see the dome and the center. So our next presenter is Roger Stroop, and uh, after Roger's presentation, we'll open it up to questions and discussion. Thanks, Ann. My role is to talk about the Civil War Susquehannock, which hasn't happened and which is going to happen, but we don't have a clue in what form it's going to happen. Um, I'm not quite sure why I got involved in this and pushed having this happen in South Carolina other than the fact that we kind of started it all at some point. So we have to be involved. I've been involved in five commemorations since 1970, and um, all of them end up uh, starting off with great uh, plans, and then they, they struggle, and then we look, at, look back to see what's happened and what really was, was the final results of them. And I think that's one of the things we really want to learn from um, both uh, the Lincoln and uh, Oklahoma City and many others to really try and make sure that happens. You can't talk about the Civil War Susquehannock without looking back at the Centennial, um, what was called the Civil War Centennial Celebration from 1960 to about 1965. And like South Carolinians, we didn't call it the Civil War Centennial. It was the Confederate Centennial in South Carolina. Um, most of our folks or many of our folks don't like the term Civil War. Um, they feel like it uh, was not a civil war. We were fighting for our state's rights and so forth. And if y'all won this morning session this morning earlier with, uh, with Dr. Horton, um, that's kind of much of the, it's still a lot of that in South Carolina. So if you look back at the centennial uh, commemoration or celebration, uh, and I think it was actually called a celebration, um, there were lots of problems. And that's one thing we want to make sure we don't do. Um, if you look back at that, it, was, it started in the late 1950s, there was a national commission that was created. It was chaired by some high-powered people. It got involved in politics. It hired high-powered people to be involved with it. It had some federal funding involved. Um, but also remember that the period 1960 to 1965, 66, when this was going on, was a time period of civil rights. Um, and that became very much a political aspect of this that caused tremendous problems. And I'll just give you a quick example. Um, in 1960, the, the, the Civil War Centennial Commission was supposed to meet in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, in order to have a major meeting to plan events and plans for the next coming four or five years. And they were going to meet at the Francis Marion Hotel. Um, one of the delegations from New Jersey had one or two African-American members. The Francis Marion Hotel refused 
to allow those African-American members to stay at the hotel. Um, President Kennedy got involved, moved the meeting to the, to the naval base, which was, of course, integrated, and the facilities there uh, would have uh, permitted um, uh, those folks to, to come, which they did. It was held. It was split. Uh, the South Carolinians didn't attend um, any of the functions at the naval base, uh, and the thing got off on a terrible start. And it kind of was the beginning, which I don't know many people know, of the Confederate flag controversy in South Carolina because the, the, um, the chairman of the state Confederate Centennial Commission came back to Columbia, introduced a resolution to place the Confederate flag uh, atop of the State House on the dome um, um, for the commemoration, for the time period of this commemoration. The legislation had no deadline on it, so it was still there in the late 1990s. Uh, and that's really where that began, and it's still going on today. Um, if you'd like to know what's going on today, I can tell you it is still controversial. And uh, the NAACP is still boycotting South Carolina, and the NCAA will not allow any regional events or playoffs of basketball or anything to take place in South Carolina as a result of that. Um, so there's still, still repercussions from the Civil War centennial period. Um, the Civil War sesquicentennial committee planning has really started um, about three years ago. Um, several of us, and Rick Beer was in the back of the room until a minute ago, um, realized we need to do something because at some time around 2010, somebody in the legislature or governor's office is going to say to somebody in one of our positions, gosh, what have you guys planned to do about the sesquicentennial coming up? We need to have some sort of commemorative events or something. Um, so we started meeting about three years ago in Pittsburgh, kind of as an informal group of folks. Um, we've had some sessions um, at AASLH each year. Um, there was a piece of legislation introduced about two or two and a half years ago in Congress to create a national Civil War Sesquicentennial Commission. Um, it has languished. It basically has not gone anywhere. It's sitting in committee somewhere. Um, it had almost no chance of, uh, of passage if it ever got out onto the floor in its current form. Uh, it created a commission of a number of people and appointments and so forth, as you would normally expect. But the part of it that was, um, was not going to fly was basically it had no funding attached to it, except that it indicate, indicated that NEH was supposed to take a certain amount of their current funding and, de and designate it specifically to Civil War sesquicentennial types of events. Well, NEH is going to battle that, so you know that's going nowhere. So there's really been no momentum behind that at all. So there's no national leadership. National Park Service. Uh, the state, the historic sites that are national sites or that are Civil War era sites um, have started meeting together to begin planning to do events and programs and, and some commemorative kind of events. But the National Park Service itself is not because the current director of the National Park Service is really looking to begin planning for the centennial of the National Park Service, which comes in the mid-19-teens. So that's been kind of put on hold. So there's no leadership from the National Park Service. So we've really taken this sort of on as a statewide, state by state is really the only way this is going to happen at this point in time. Whether or not after this election in November there is some uh, interest in Congress in trying to put something forward to create some sort of national leadership, that may or may not happen. Um, I don't think those of us at the state level at this point that are working with this are really going to try to push that. I think we're going to work on our own uh, and try and be able to do that. There are about 14 or 15 states, um, mostly in the southeast and the uh, northeast, that um, have something going on in terms of an organization that's been created in one way or another. There's probably eight or nine that has some sort of legislation has been passed of various types um, for 
complete commissions. Uh, Virginia, for example, has a commission that's been established by legislation which contains, I think, a couple of political folks. Um, the most important part of there is it also contains $2 million in this year's money and a commitment for substantial money over the next five or six years for them. The $2 million they got in the current budget, in my understanding, is just for planning um, in there. Just in South Carolina, very quickly, what we've done is uh, we got a piece of legislation passed that creates an advisory board under the Department of Archives and History. Uh, rather than creating a whole separate entity, uh, we felt like if we can keep it under the Department of Archives and History, uh, we've got some basic uh, responsibility to maintain and keep an eye on it. Uh, hopefully, we can keep it from getting too terribly involved in politics. It's about a 22-member board. Uh, which contains six political appointees, two by the governor, two by the Speaker of the House, and two by the President Pro Tem of the Senate, and then about 15 or 16 interested organizations from the Department of Archives and History to the Parks and Tourism folks um, to the couple of the private uh, historical societies, the large ones in the state, the African American Heritage Commission, um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the UDC, United Daughters of the Confederacy, uh, Sons of the Confederacy. So we've got all across the board, all these organizations are involved on this, on this board. Um, what we have done that I'm not sure has been done elsewhere is, and I'm not sure I'd do it again, but we held seven public meetings last fall around the state um, and asked people to come in. And what we really were looking at was looking at how we're going to organize this board within South Carolina. Not, we didn't want to get into issues and discuss topics and concerns and those kind of things, and we, we were interested in how should we organize this and what role would, would the citizens like to see this advisory board play, and besides the obvious one of providing money, um, and we took that off the table to begin with, what role can this advisory board play? And what we really came up with those, and these are posted on the archives website, if you just go to the South Carolina Department of Archives and History website, um, we've posted a, a fairly lengthy listing of sort of what we got from the information from these. Um, Interestingly, I think what most folks wanted this organization to do and the direction we'll be taking, at least in South Carolina, is not trying to plan any major big events ourselves. Because to start with, we've got very little funding. I got $65,000 in a one-time appropriation two years ago. Um, and we've got one of my former staff members is coming back working one day a week as just sort of the coordinator for us right now and sort of keeping things going and keeping up with folks. And he's been involved in a, a couple of uh, conference calls um, in there. What they really want this group to do is sort of be a facilitator and an organizer and putting people together with concepts and ideas. So we're really going to work from that standpoint rather than trying to actually plan any major events ourselves. We've already pawned off the two major events to folks in the Charleston area. There's an organization down there that really supports Fort Sumter and Fort Moultrie. It's a private organization which has put together a consortium in Charleston. Um, they're going to plan the December 20th, 2010 event, which was the signing of the Ordinance of Secession in Charleston, and the April 12th event, 2011, which will be the 150th anniversary of the firing on Fort Sumter. So they already have plans in place or are working on the plans to do that, to pull off major events um, in that area. We feel like what our job at this board will be um, is to get it facilitated. I still don't have the six political appointees. The board has met three or four times. Um, sort of as a, an ad hoc group because we really didn't have any official uh, standing until um, May when the legislation was finally passed. Um, so we will be holding a meeting as soon as I can get those three political folks to appoint me six people so we can get the thing filled out and really begin to work um, from that standpoint. 
Let me just give you a couple comments of what we got from those public meetings which were interesting. If you were in this morning session with Dr. Horton, uh, it's, it's very similar to what, what he indicated. The first thing I got in almost every one of these meetings, and, and the first meeting was held in Aiken, South Carolina, and the word got out to the reenactors and the Sons of Confederate Veterans um, that these meetings were happening, and they were there in force at every one of them, um, interestingly enough. Not as much the UDC, which I would have thought would have been much stronger. It's, it's interesting, in South Carolina at least, the Sons has become much more active and vocal and uh, involved than the, than the Daughters has been, which is, which is totally reversed of what's happened in the past. Um, in there. In fact, at, at Aiken, we had three or four guys in uniforms and two or three ladies in hoop skirts, um, which was interesting. Every one of these I heard, the first thing I heard was it wasn't a civil war. Um, it was a war between the states um, or whatever other term they might want to use. They, they don't want to recognize uh, that that term is there. I managed to shunt that off to the side. I said, we're not here to discuss that. So that's not what we're looking at. Structure, function, funding, that's what we really want to talk about at these meetings. So. I got that sort of pushed off to the side, except at one meeting where one gentleman was just determined that we were going to discuss that issue. And after getting really frustrated, I finally just kind of indicated to him, I said, you know, I said in most times in history, the winners get to choose the name. So I said, that's what we're going to go with. Um, in addition to which, when the legislation was passed, one of our state senators, um, who's the, who was the driving force behind the whole Hunley project, um, as a Confederate reenactor himself, very strongly, always calls it the war between the states. I convinced him to call it the Civil War. I said, that's kind of what it's known as in the history books. I said, Let's, can we just please do that just to sort of get headed off in the right direction? So that's the way the legislation was introduced and passed um, in there. And the second interesting thing that came up in every one of these meetings, and this, this came out of both the Confederate reenactors, those kind of folks, as well as many African Americans who were in the audience, was pointing out the fact that there were lots of Confederate soldiers who were African Americans. Because we just recently, about a year ago, posted all of our Confederate pension records online, about 12,000 online. You can access those online. And it includes many African Americans, and we actually had a publication which talked about all of these who got Confederate pensions. So they immediately assumed they were all carrying weapons. Well, they weren't. The state gave Confederate pensions to anybody who served the Confederacy in South Carolina, and that included digging ditches and fixing railroads and whatever else they might have been doing. We don't have one documented case in those of somebody actually lining up with a weapon and going into battle. But yet that concept is now out there, and they're all proudly saying, well, there were African-Americans who fought on behalf of the Confederacy. So that's, you know, that's one of those things. So those, those are the challenges that I think we face, is looking at those kinds of very distorted pieces of information that are floating out there um, that we really have to look at very, very carefully. So that's a problem. That's a major challenge um, in there. Um, none of us are really sure where this is going. At one point, uh, when Rick Beard um, was working as a consultant out of Atlanta, Rick was working to set up a private 501c3 nonprofit called Civil War 150, I think was one they was going to call it. Um, and then he got gainfully employed in Springfield, so that's kind of gone off to the side, I think, in which we're really looking at trying to put together at least a national now nonprofit that we could potentially go to try and raise some national funding for. So that has sort of slipped off to the side with Rick's new duties. He's not able to really continue working in that direction. So that, that probably will not happen, at least not to the level at which we had initially um, hoped or had planned that that might come off um, in there. 
Um, if you're interested in more, uh, we've got a meeting this afternoon. It's not on any of the schedules um, at 3.30 in Aqueduct A, which is just down the hall. Um, uh, at 3.30, the 12 or so, 14 of us states that are, are in some way beginning to work on this um, have been meeting. WSLH um, is not taking a leadership role in this in terms of providing uh, tremendous amounts of staff time or support or promoting it. What they are doing is they really are acting as a convener for us. Um, and Bob Beatty is uh, sort of the staff person that's uh, working with us on this. Um, we've had two conference calls with the 13 or 14 or 15 states that are involved over the last six or eight um, weeks to just sort of keep up with each other, what's going on, what's happening. Um, and so ASLH is, asking, is working really as that convener for us. So those folks are going to meet um, this afternoon at 3.30 in Aqueduct A. And if anybody's interested in coming, be glad to have you. Um, Rick Beard is really going to be um, uh, Challenge, uh, leading that meeting for us and provide us with the, with the guidance and where we're going. Bob will be there as well. So that's sort of the, where we stand right now. We're still very much in the baby stages of planning this. Um, some of the states are much further than others um, and have some sort of beginning to have some concrete plans in place. Um, others are uh, beginning to get things together, have some ideas, uh, but nothing firmly concrete. Um, the one thing we're doing right now um, is uh, trying to find out everything we know of in the state that already exists that deals with the Civil War. Um, obviously locating all the public sites, all the structures and open, that are open to this public uh, battles that are fought in the state. Um, programs that might be available for schools through historical societies, museums and whatnot to know that they already are in place. So we can put those all together in a, uh, in a website. We, and we've already got a small website. It's on the archives website as well. Um, just to basically put basic information out there, the re results of the uh, uh, public meetings we held last fall are on there, as well as a list of the folks who actually are on that right now, uh, plus the legislation. There's a link to the legislation um, on there as well. So we're really trying to pull together all of these things right now and get them together uh, and begin to find out exactly where we're going to go with this. Um, we don't anticipate substantial state funding in South Carolina. I don't think many of the states are, are anticipating, except Virginia at this point, um, getting some substantial state funding um, to go into the, into the program. We're going to ask for it, obviously, um, to not only utilize just for the, uh, the, the small amount of folks that we'll be using uh, from my staff to do that, but we'll also be looking at uh, putting together a regrant program is one of the things we want to do, to try to put things together. You know, if a small historical society in Spartanburg decides to put together an exhibit on the life of this average Civil War soldier, for example, um, it's crazy for them to do that and then take it down and put it all up. Why not get six or eight or seven of the historical societies to go together, put it together, and then travel it from place to place within the state and use that as a way to sort of coordinate. So that's the way we see this working, and we're hoping to be able to get some state money down the road. We don't have $100 oil um, in there, and we probably won't have it offshore either. Um, even if they drill offshore, we don't think there's $100 oil out there, at least not enough to make it worthwhile. Um, to drill. So we'll continue to work on that. So um, again, please join us this afternoon at 3.30. We'd love to have anybody and get all of your input. Thanks. We'll open things up to discussion now. And although we've focused on uh, commemorative events that are national or statewide in nature, the military history spurred events like the Civil War, uh, statehood, we recognize that you may be involved with commemorations, foundings of cities, other events. Uh, there's transforming events like passage of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution or the Emancipation Proclamation 
that obviously fall into this category as well. So we don't want to limit our discussion just to the sesquicentennial or statehood, statehood celebrations if you have questions about that. So with that, we'll uh, open things up for questions and discussion. And uh, since we are recording, as I said, I'll repeat your question, but if, if you can speak loudly, that will help as well. So is any, yes. Okay, so the question is national legislation for a war of 1812 commission. Similar to what Roger was talking about, the, the Civil War, uh, Sesquicentennial Commission, there was a uh, bill introduced by Paul Sarbanes, who was then Senator of Maryland, and in the House it was sponsored by a Maryland congressman. This was introduced about five years ago. I believe uh, the first version of that bill, interestingly enough, to those of us in the old South, what's called the old Southwest, the old territory south of River Ohio, it only included, the only state that was not on the eastern seaboard included was Louisiana. And the, board, the, the bills that established said that anything given to the United States related to the War of 1812 would all go to Fort McHenry in Maryland, and anything else might go to New Orleans uh, History Center. Well, obviously, there are a lot of us, uh, including Ohio and Michigan and Tennessee and Kentucky, who have uh, Georgia was not included, who have War of 1812 history uh, that got involved. But that legislation has not passed. Unlike the Civil War legislation, uh, which actually was uh, first introduced, well, I'm not sure if there's an active bill on the War of 1812, to tell you the truth, in Congress right now. The original Civil War bill, uh, if it doesn't pass in two years, the bills fail and are taken off the books. That one has been reintroduced by the congressional delegation out of Louisiana. And similar, Louisiana and Maryland, and I, do we have anybody from Louisiana and Maryland in the, in the room? Okay. Uh, the, Louis, the Civil War sesquicentennial bill wants to seat everything at the Center for the Civil War at LSU. So <laughs> there's obviously some lobbying going on uh, from the states to make hay. But that, it's been introduced in the House, but uh, has no Senate sponsor for the Civil War. I think the, of course, Paul Sarbanes is no longer in Congress, and I'm not sure where 1812 is right now. Yes, Kent. I was just going to add that with regard to Lincoln Bicentennial, they did pass legislation, and it was modest funding, I think a total of 600000 if I remember correctly. But quite frankly, the, the, the National Commission has struggled for an identity, and those of us that have done Lincoln have pretty much done Lincoln on our own. And I, I, think, uh, I think Roger's right as we move forward on the sesquicentennial and on the 1812 bicentennial. We're going to have to band together outside of Washington. I don't think I don't think the federal government's going to step up much. Yes, um, I just like to um, mention and encourage people and from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Um, I don't think we want somebody to tell us that we have to fund it, but we are very eager to fund um, the Civil War and uh, Lincoln and uh, these uh, commemorative. Contact NEH, the Division of Public Programs, and the 
So the point is, is that, it, I, if, if I may interpret, although the NEH is not interested in having portions of their grant programs earmarked specifically for commemorative events, they do want to, to see proposals for good projects related to commemorative events and, and are encouraging those submissions. But, uh, and I think in the case of any commemorative event, whether it's a state uh, commemoration or others, if you design a good project, for example, uh, for the Tennessee bicentennial that took place in the 1990s, we were successful in getting uh, very significant support from the EH for a series of reading and discussion programs around the state tied to the settlement and formation of Tennessee. So you don't have to have something earmarked for you in order to compete for it. And, and I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to imply that NEH and, and those kind of agencies wouldn't support it. I meant more in terms of a line item from Congress. So glad you spoke up. Yeah, no, I didn't. Uh, yeah. okay. Any other questions or comments? Yes. Um, I, I saw these up here and thought, uh, I kept looking at the second one, teens are scary. I thought that maybe one of you were going to address it, but it must have been from an earlier program, but it brought something to mind. <laughs> and that's the question of, of relevance um, in bringing in um, new generations to be interested in heritage and history and linking uh, the past to relevancy of um, the present. Seeing what happened with Lewis and Clark, uh, it kind of puttered, it felt like on a national scale, it puttered out. We commemorated it. There was a lot of connection and understanding of Western expansion and Western history, um, but it was over before it was really over. I find, um, I work for the Park Service in Massachusetts at Lowell National Historical Park, and we're excited about the Sussex Centennial in finally showing, okay, there wasn't a battle in Massachusetts, but there was an economic battle cotton. Um, and coming to Massachusetts as a native Californian, it's all new to me in terms of this extraordinary story of globalization, of um, capitalism. And uh, you've got the abolitionists who at the same time, some of these uh, capitalists are abolitionists within their family, or they're using uh, the desire to make money support um, slavery. We want to bring some of these complex issues to light um, in 2011. But from the perspective of, of your states, were you looking at programming at the local level to really hammer home this uh, question of relevancy and uh, new supporters of heritage and bringing young people into understanding this? or? Um, was this something that was core to the goals of each of, of, of you at the state at the state level? So the panel addressed the issue of uh, appealing to younger generations, relevancy, and can you depend on the local community to deliver that relevancy? Anybody want to? Yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll go first. Uh, just you know your reference to Lewis and Clark. Uh, I do kind of agree with you. I don't know if you remember, I think it was actually a Wall Street Journal article that came out shortly after the Lewis and Clark Bicentennial that I guess you could at worst describe as scathing and at best you could describe as cynical where they were talking about what happened in the western states at the end of that celebration and 
the investment they made and how that didn't pay off and they didn't get the visitors and it was a very cynical, very cynical in tone. That's one thing we've tried to avoid with the Lincoln Bicentennial by, you know, we kind of say over-promise and underperform, but we don't really mean that per se. It's just we're very careful and very measured in what we say our expectations are for heritage tourism and that kind of investment, that kind of visitation. I don't think, as far as what we were doing for young people, we have involved our Kentucky Department of Education uh, through do educational curriculum related to Lincoln. We have done a teacher training workshop. The National Park Service did that. Uh, of course, their site is the Lincoln birthplace in Hodgenville, and they actually had a teacher workshop at our site where they were training some teachers on how to get Lincoln into the curriculum involved and engage students that way. I'm not thinking of a specific initiative we've given where we're going to engage students at a level outside of the school level. I think some of the individual programs that have been granted uh, that we've had grants for have done that maybe or are trying to do that. But definitely trying to engage young people is definitely something we're trying to do through the Lincoln Bicentennial, especially through through schools and through the curriculum. So that is important to us. Of course, just like the rest of you, we have an ongoing battle with our Department of Education. And the national standards are just killing us because it's pushing history and history more into a little compact unit that if it's not tested, it's not relevant to a lot of superintendents and principals, and it's just the reality of, of politics today. One thing that we've done is that we're trying to take the message and make it so easy for teachers. So we work through the schools, trying to get them to our museums, and then we're going out with trunks and, and living history in particular. And our educational staff at the History Center, we have five full-time educators and all do living history. So that makes it a little bit more palatable. But I think uh, we have one project uh, using music and pop culture seems to appeal to young people. We did an exhibit on Woody Guthrie. Who would have ever thought young people would be passionate about Woody Guthrie? I was surprised how relevant he is among a lot of young people. They're rediscovering Woody Guthrie and the roots of rock and roll. And so we're doing a new museum in Tulsa that has the state's largest foundation behind it, the George Kaiser Foundation, to do a new museum of pop culture in Oklahoma that will start with music and go to drama, include the movies, and uh, Route 66, and those will be the themes that we use there. And we can get the young people in. Our Civil War sites, you know, it's the living history is a way to sell those. And our land run story, we let the kids participate. But I feel like those are just kind of in passing. The pop culture, I think, is the way that we're going to be able to get them in long term. Yes.
today and making it relevant to today's uh, people of all ages, not just youth, but to everyone, I think is going to make it a more successful celebration. If, from my own perspective, I think that we need to be careful not to presume we understand what's relevant about the Civil War. What's relevant to us as historians about the war may be quite different than what's relevant to that 16-year-old related to the, six, to the Civil War that you're talking about. And Roger brought up uh, the public meetings that they've held in South Carolina relative to the sesquicentennial. Having public meetings is uh, a little bit uncomfortable, but I think that if you're far enough in advance of whatever event it is that you're planning to interpret and present, public meetings is an excellent way to, to gauge what people's expectations are and what they also consider to be relevant. Sometimes your view of what's relevant, whether you're a member of the public or a member of our public history community, can change as well. And if public meetings are not the route you want to go, then you may want to have something like a small focus group of teens or heritage groups and talk to them about their aspirations and concerns about the event that you're doing. I, I think the more we can open the conversation about why the event that we're interested in is transformative, the more relevant it becomes to today and the people who are remembering that event today. And if you're not reading the scholarship that's now being done on memory and the construction of historical memory, you really need to start reading these books. In the case of the sesquicentennial, I think Hugh Brundage's book, uh, The Southern Past, which looks at the two narratives of Southern racial history, from the white community and the black community, it's it's uh, uh, Oxford, Harvard Press, Harvard Press, but uh, he's a professor at UNC Chapel Hill. It, that's an extremely uh, revelatory uh, work. But Kent, you had something. You flag exhibition that Roger, we immediately got to the Confederate battle flag, and that was the first indication we got from our publics, teachers, uh, members, uh, veterans, um, you know, the different uh, demographics represented, that, that quite frankly, they'd have been really disappointed had we backed off on that, if we had kind of tucked and run from those issues. We also did some uh, online research. We aimed, and this guy was the researcher, is more of a uh, tourism and travel oriented person. But we were testing um, historic themes around which to build our, our Lincoln Heritage Trail. And the slavery and emancipation theme was by far the most intriguing to, to those folks who responded to this online survey. Um, and, and so I think we need to, to muster up some courage. Like, like Roger did in those public meetings and say, um, not only our traditional publics, but, but those, those guys on the, on the um, board over there that, that seem a little scary, you know, they're, they're going to just write us off as not being credible if we don't look at these issues. And I bet we've all got historic sites and museums and artifacts to tell 
deep, rich, substantive, compelling stories on these on these themes. But I think we've just gotta we gotta hit it head on. And they're telling us we need to do that if this new group is gonna take us seriously. Yes, in the back. So I think that that statement of the importance of framing the discussion is very critical. And, and I would agree that reenactors as a group no more all look alike than all the women in this group look like each other and all the men in this group look like this, each other or that as a whole we look like each other. There's, it, it's a very diverse group. Uh, are there any other uh, questions or comments? this morning? Well, I guess we've just gone into this afternoon. Okay, Chris. Um, as I mentioned, you know, we have a position paper board and happy to share. We have an actual marketing plan that we did for the Bicentennial. We're happy to share if anybody is curious about that. I was going to print some out today, but it's quite long, so I thought I'd, I'd save some trees and just give you the option. If you want it, I'll email it to you. But we got a lot of supporting documents for the Lincoln Bicentennial that we're happy to share. If anyone's interested, just come up, let me know, give me a card or give me your email address and we'll take care of that. Well, thank you all for being here this morning. We'll look forward to seeing you in Indianapolis next year. Sure.